Hey everybody, welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Pekulski. We frame this podcast around living your greatest life in a body that you love. It sounds like an impossible task. It sounds like a daunting task, but let me tell you, ladies and gents, it's not. You can learn to accept yourself and flourish and be a high achiever. This is ultimately what we're after. And I went out and found another amazing guest for you. Today's guest is always providing top-notch perspective, top-notch information. He's one of the authorities right now in the entire country on hormone optimization. Dr. Rolf Esposito has been a guest on the show before, and I love his conversation. I love that he always brings so much value to you, to me, every time he comes on. So I asked Dr. Rolf to come back one more time. This guy is an absolute stud. He's an absolute rock star, and he's living this optimized life that I think every one of you should pay attention to as far as the minutia of what he says, right? You know, it's not just this overall brushstroke of like, hey, guys, optimize your testosterone, like many guys say, or hey, guys, just pay attention to nutrition. He's talking about everything. He's talking about, you know, he's thinking about things rather than just myopically following what people say, right? You know, I'm very much against uh, common belief, right? I think common belief is BS and you need to challenge your BS rules. I'll avoid the cussing for the sake of the intro. <laughs> but Dr. Rafa Esposito is a physician out of New York, constantly doing research, constantly working in a clinical setting with really high level performers. And, you know, he's informed me of some of the people he's working with and, and the way I can see their life accelerating is amazing. And, and it excites me to just watch what's possible when you start to pay attention to what matters, right? So stop focusing on the minutia and start focusing on the big rocks that can move the quality of life for you. And that may be different than it is for me, right? And this is why I created my six pillars of a lean, healthy, and muscular body. If you guys don't know what those are, there's a podcast on them, but I'll give you a quick oversight. It's obviously intelligent training. You got to move. You got you to challenge yourself. Uh, intelligent nutrition, right? And that is the topic of many conversations. What is intelligent nutrition? Well, it's eating for what your expectations are today, not being you know, attached to one type of approach saying, hey, if I need a different type of nutrient today to fuel what my body needs, I'm going to give it that. If I'm getting a tremendous amount of sun, my diet should be very different than when it's in the wintertime. And thinking your way through that, what does my body need right now to flourish? Moving along from this, it's mental mastery is one of my pillars, right? How do you become a master of this cognitive thing that runs between our ears? Maybe, you know, the, they say the parts are there and then consciousness exists somewhere beyond the scope of what we know. Um, mastering your sleep, your autonomic nervous system and stress, and your environment are the final three. And those are things we talk about a lot. In, and you'll notice that Dr. Ralph actually talks about each and every one of those pillars today, uh, paying attention to things like light and air and water and EMF matters. How much does it matter? I don't know. It depends where you are in the world. It depends how much you think it matters for you. If you're being bombarded living in New York City, that it's a bigger thing for you than it is for someone who lives on a farm 10 miles away from the nearest you know, 5G cell phone tower. So this is why we created a framework for you guys to really understand how to optimize your life. And Dr. Ralph does an incredible job diving into things as far as hormone optimization and nutrition and fasting and blood panels and markers and, and genetics and so many amazing things that just excites me to hear people talking about this stuff and people who are so, so bright leading the way, just like Dr. Ralph does. Without any more rambling, as always, an amazing episode coming your way from the Muscle Intelligence Podcast Live your greatest life in a body you love. Enjoy. 
All right, man. So let's get rolling and let's talk about human optimization. So I'm living in this world now where after 15 years of professional bodybuilding, I'm exiting that and pursuing the highest level of human performance, right? And, and looking at all these high-level performers from professional athletes to high-level military, special forces people to high-level entrepreneurs and really anybody looking to push the envelope in every aspect of their life, right? And, you know, so when we look at, when we say a high performer, we're not just talking about athletics. I'm talking about cognitive function. I'm talking about sexual function. I'm talking about everything, right? These people who just want to get the most out of life, you know, the people who take on that champion's mindset. And I'd love for you to start diving into things we talked about just before being in the podcast, you know, hormone optimization. What things should we be looking at? What ranges should we be assuming and accepting on our blood panels? Why don't we kick off with that? Yeah. So I think really to understand where that optimization level is, there's two things I need to come into consideration. Number one, what is the test actually measuring? And what is the range based on? And then secondly, what is the range specific for you? And that's when the conversation comes in on, on testosterone and androgen sensitivity for that individual. So for example, you have, well, let, first let's talk about what is the testosterone range. And a lot of your listeners probably understand that there's total testosterone and free testosterone. That range of whatever the total testosterone level is of that lab, let's say 300 to 1,000, that range is based on a standard deviation, right? So the middle, the, the mean, the average is the middle. And then two standard deviations away, below and above, brings you at 300 or 1,000. And that basically means the fifth percentile to the 95th percentile of that population is within that bell curve. Right. If you fall that's below. currently, right? That's, that's, that's currently. 17, I think that was, right? If we, if we roll that back 30 years, that shifts dramatically to the, to the right. Exactly. Okay, good point. Because we have seen testosterone levels significantly decrease over the past 40 to 50 years, which is interesting. So a lot of people say, well, you know, testosterone levels have decreased over the past 40 to 50 years. So what has happened the past 40 to 50 years? Actually, you have to look at what's been happening over the past 60 to 80 years, because when you look at testosterone over the past 40 to 50 years, it's based on men who were born 60 to 80 years ago. And we know that your hormone levels are impacted by your exposure to hormones and other environmental toxins in utero. chemicals. Exactly right. So, and that, well, a prime example of that is DES, where we know that mothers who were pregnant and they took a hormone called DES their children, if they had women or female children, they had higher risk of like uterine cancer growing up, right? And that was an exposure in utero. Now we have learned that that's a major risk factor, but who knows what the risk factors are for the children that are being born now, maybe in 30 years, we'll figure that out. For your listeners, I'm going to tell you everything that I know now. So hopefully we don't have to wait 30 years. Perfect. So that bell curve is basically whether you fall within the 5th to 95th percentile in 2017 or 2018 or whatever it is, that is the average for the whole population based on who that lab has tested. That's great to know that average, but I want to know what is the standard deviation? What is that bell curve for this particular individual? And Ben, you've probably seen this before as well Is you get some men who are taking, you know, 50 milligrams of testosterone twice a week or 100 milligrams a week and they feel like they're on top of the world and there's other guys who just need to keep on bumping it up and bumping it up 
And that has a lot to do with what is their testosterone sensitivity. So when you first look at it, you have to look at where do I fall along the bell curve or the average based on this population, and how does that fit within my own biochemical individuality? And that's when I look at other hormones. I look at free testosterone. I look at sex hormone binding globulin. You have to look at cortisol levels, which I use in urine. You have to look at- Cortisol in urine. I do. I look at cortisol in urine. I don't look at cortisol in saliva. What is that? Which, so cortisol and saliva, there's two reasons. Number one is that your salivary glands can convert much of your cortisol to cortisone, the inactive metabolite. And in saliva, you're not getting all of the metabolites of cortisol. Hmm. So plasma cortisol levels or serum cortisol levels are completely moot. Like there's no reason to test your cortisol with a blood test. You don't have no idea how many times I get even physicians who are like, oh yeah, I checked their cortisol levels and it's, it's really high. They must have an issue. That is testing total cortisol levels, right? It's like, it's like trying to measure the weight of the people on a plane by measuring the whole plane. You're not going to get the whole picture there. You're really just going to get everything. And free cortisol, I'm sorry, total cortisol, is that what, that's what you get in plasma levels or serum levels. In urinary testing, you can, because the, the bladder is, is a reservoir. And in the bladder, you can check, you basically accumulate the free testosterone, free cortisone, and the metabolites of those. And that's how you can get an idea of what your cortisol levels are over a 24-hour period. Now, the gold standard is basically collect your urine for 24 hours in like a little bucket and then measure your cortisol over that. But in fact, the data shows that you, if you collect urine over four periods of time, you can get that information and have an idea of what your cortisol rhythm is as well. If you just collect your cortisol, your urine in, in a bucket over 24 hours, you don't get the rhythm, you just get the total. So the, the rhythm of your cortisol, whether it's high or low in the morning, afternoon, nighttime, after waking up, is just as important as knowing what the total levels are. Sure. You started making a list of SHBC cortisol and other things you're testing to optimize. Yeah, absolutely. So then you have to look at estradiol. And I want to make it very clear that you should be testing estradiol via an a assay called LCMS or liquid chromatography mass spectrometry. And the reason why is because uh, it's funny. I actually had a patient who we tested his estradiol levels and it came up to like 220 picograms per milliliter. Mm-hmm. And I was like, holy crap. Like, I, And I was like, this guy either must have gotten comastia or is getting, you know, like his wife is putting on topical estrogen and he's just basically rolling around in it. He's rolling around in lavender fields. <laughs> oh, or that, right? <laughs> hey, don't take a shot of lavender fields, man. That stuff's calming, okay? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, Anthony J posted something the other day, you know, Dr. Anthony J. Yeah. He posted something where they had like a before and after of a baby using a lavender cream. Mm-hmm. And it was like this little obese baby with gynecomastia versus <laughs> not using it. It's pretty amazing. There are some studies showing that lavender essential oils can upregulate aromatase enzymes. Right, that's what he's. He's kind of the estrogen guy, right? So he was. Yeah, I, I want to make sure that you're testing and your doctor is testing estradiol via LCMS because I did the test again with LCMS and the test came back like his, his estradiol was at like 32, and I was like, wow, that's that's a big difference, right? So you want to get as much. What do you think was the difference there? Why was that first one so high? There was something interfering with the assay of the original test. So the original test is an immuno assay, something old. Uh, or ECLIA, where is basically it's an immune reaction that the, the machine has a antigen 
and the estradiol is an antibody and it binds to the antigen on the, on the machine. And then it says, okay, I'm detecting this much estradiol, therefore the measurement is this. But there must have been something else that was very similar to the structure of the estradiol that was also binding to the machine. Got it. So you, basically you can make very, very false medical decisions just on a, on a poor test. So the LCMS is just going to be more accurate in your yes. Um, it is, it is the most accurate. Okay. Yeah. So estradiol, sex hormone binding globulin, total testosterone, free testosterone. I check DHT or dihydrotestosterone, yeah. which is something that a lot of doctors don't test, surprisingly. And I just think, look, just based on basic biochemistry, you need to know where this testosterone is going, right? So there's pathways that it goes down, and you want to try to manipulate those pathways as best as possible. And then other hormones that I would be testing is other things like thyroid hormone, which has an impact on your testosterone receptors, not necessarily your total testosterone levels, right. which, which gets into the question as to why are some men more sensitive to testosterone than others? And I think a lot of that has to do with thyroid hormone. I think that there's a lot of subjectivity to that term too. And I'd love for you to get into this. As you say, sensitive to testosterone, let's say you take 100 milligrams, you feel like Superman. I take 300 milligrams, I don't feel great. It feels like, and you took, correct me if I'm wrong, there's a lot of sub-levels that go, go into that, right? Is, it, is testosterone levels not impacting brain health? Is it not impacting other endocrine organs, ultimately, glands, yeah. to impact the way we feel? Like, is that it's impacting the thyroid? It may be impacting the adrenals. It may be impacting the brain, right? Like, is that truth? And if so, how? Right. So if the question is, how do we measure it? Or is the question, what are the things that it's impacting? The testosterone levels. Yeah, so you, you take 300 milligrams to test, I, or yeah, you take 100, I take 300, we feel completely differently. Is it just because of receptor site affinity or is there other things playing into that? So number one, it has to do with uh, history. And if that individual has been exposed to either higher levels or lower level lower levels of testosterone in the past. So typically men who have very low testosterone, this is why the um, endocrine society, which I respectfully disagree with their guidelines, although I think they're great guidelines, I don't think they're applicable on a universal level. And basically they say is that in order for to treat somebody with testosterone, they need to have low testosterone numbers. So a, a total testosterone of less than 300 nanograms per deciliter or a free testosterone of less than, I think it's 4.2 nanograms per deciliter. And they must have symptoms. And I think to myself, the symptoms are much more important than the actual total levels. And this goes into your question as to why are some men more responsive than others? And it has to do with past exposure. So typically you take a man who has very low testosterone all throughout his life. A good example of this is men who've had varicoceles, which is basically an issue with the veins in their testes that don't cool the testes down well enough. And there becomes a, their testes basically overheat and their testosterone levels decrease. Or men who's had something called cryptorchidism, which is one of their testicles does not drop during uh, puberty or even at birth. So that can also impact testosterone levels. And when you put these men on testosterone, they notice a significant response. And Dr. Abraham Morgenteller, who you may know of, did a lot of research on testosterone sensitivity as in specific to prostate cancer. But I think this applies to all androgen receptors universal across the body is that the less the body is exposed to testosterone, when it sees it, it may respond more robustly. 
So is there no such thing as upregulation of uh, receptors? Is there such thing as upregulation? Mm-hmm. There can be, and there are some genetic factors that go into that. Number one would be what we call CAG repeats. So mm-hmm. this, is a, this is a hard thing for me to talk about only because there is very few ways to test it. You really have to just do, like this is really done in a research setting. Like your, you know, your, your standard like 23andMe or Ancestry won't give you this. It's not a SNP. This is a nucleotide repeat. And we see that when you have greater CAG repeats, which are nucleotides, right? They're like, you know, when you make DNA, it's based on a language, on, a, on an alphabet of C, A, G, and T, right? And with RNA, it's U, uracil. But when you get constant repeats of that, it makes the testosterone receptors less sensitive, right? So there's a genetic component to this that has a big factor. Right. So that would be some gene that's transcribing for the CAG repeat. Exactly. There is we don't a, know what gene. We don't know what gene maybe is uh, transcribing for that. It's not. It's not a gene that's transcribing for it. It's. It's how this. It's this individual's genetic makeup, right? Okay. So mm-hmm. those those three repeats will code for the androgen receptor, and the more that there are, the less active or the the less the receptor is less sensitive. So it basically, just dulls it, right? So there's a genetic component to that. Now, can you upregulate testosterone receptors? We do the best example of this is for prostate cancer. And I know this is not answering the question exactly because we we haven't really done studies in individuals to say, here I'm giving you super physiologic levels of testosterone. What does this do to your receptors? Which we can get into a whole other study as to, you know, is a thousand testosterone better than five hundred or three hundred? Remind me to ask I'm reminding you to ask me. So but in prostate cancer, we see that Above a certain, if men are deprived of testosterone levels, if they're exposed to testosterone, it causes an increase in PSA, uh, prostate-specific antigen, right? So that is something that we measure to measure aggressiveness of, of a prostate cancer. And we do find that when men are put on androgen deprivation therapy, which is basically you chemically castrate a man, you make it so that they are not making... Uh, any luteinizing hormones, so they can't make testosterone, or you give them estradiol, what will happen is that their testosterone levels completely plummet, the prostate cancer slows down. The second you take them off, the prostate cancer becomes immediately more aggressive and more sensitive to the testosterone. Now, is that a function of the prostate cancer itself? Is, is that saying that other bodily tissues will respond in that exact same way? I don't know that for sure, but I, I have to imagine that if, if cancer cells are responding that way, then there's the possibility that other cells in the body also may be responding that way. And you may even see this in a lot of you know people that are in uh, bodybuilding and athletic performance is that when they take testosterone, they change their body features, right? Like oh, why do- sure right? Like their jaws get wider, forehead. Especially over time, right? Like Exactly. It's not usually an acute thing, but over time you definitely see that. Exactly. And that is a partly an anabolic response, but it's also an androgen receptor response. And there are also men who can get acne while they're on testosterone and other men who don't get it at all. And they have the same amount of testosterone levels. And that is a receptor issue. I think where I am a little bit disappointed in myself and also in the literature is how do I fix that? How mm-hmm. do I improve that? 
and how do I measure that? And unfortunately, that I think is a limitation as to where the science is right now. So as far as like optimization within with the realm of testosterone, is it completely subjective? Like find the place where you feel best and stay there? So basically where I'm going with this question is, let's say I'm taking 100 milligrams a week right now, you know, or, or let's say, yeah, let's say I'm taking 100 milligrams of exogenous TRT right now, and I feel really great. But, my, uh, you know, the high performance a- attitude is always like, well, maybe I can feel better at 200 milligrams, right? That's, that's the, the bodybuilder's mentality. Right. It's like, well, if 200 is good, 400 must be better. Right. So how do, we, how do we find out where's optimal without going overboard? Because that leads to that question is like, what if I did get up to 500 a week? Or what if I did get up to 1,000 a week? Does that decrease my ability to use it now and decrease my receptor site's affinity to uptake yeah. the hormone? Yeah. So I think that the answer to the question is, is we do not know if supraphysiologic levels of testosterone is better than getting basically average levels or higher than the mean levels of testosterone. So for example, is a testosterone level, total testosterone level of 2000 nanograms per deciliter better than 1000 nanograms per deciliter. And unfortunately, all of the literature, I would, I would say there's maybe like one or two studies, but they're not done uh, very well that have shown that if you take a man from very low testosterone, 200 to 800, they get better. But we don't know if taking you from 800 to 1200 actually improves your numbers or improves your outcomes or your outcome. What we do have to take a look at is your symptoms. And also we have to be as objective as possible. So what I do is, is I do Adam scores, which is basically a questionnaire. So I ask you, are your symptoms of testosterone improving? I look at SHIM scores, which is a sexual health index, a questionnaire, but it'll tell me, is your sexual health getting better? And then you can do other cognitive testing, right? So like mood, mood testing or seeing how you are responding, how your mood is responding over a period of time. And that's how, that's how objective as you have to be. Then you do the more objective measures that you're probably a lot more familiar with, like body composition, right? You could even do, and when I say body composition, I don't mean just like what's your body fat, but how much water are you retaining? Is there symmetry along these numbers? And then you could even do DEXA scans, which is look at your bone density. That is how you really measure, is this better for me or not? And really the rule for me is, find the sweet spot for your individual symptoms and where you feel best based on that testosterone level. And I don't want men to get caught up in a number. And you know this all the time. It's like men go to the doctor. Oh, did you check my testosterone? What is my number? It's like high score type of mentality where it really should just be, how do you feel at that number? Do you recommend most men take testosterone replacement after a certain age? It depends on the person's lifestyle and what they expect. I think the, the literature shows that if men are continuing on testosterone for about 18 to 24 months, there's, that's pretty much the, the point of no return. After a man takes testosterone, we're talking about exogenous testosterone, for longer than that period of time, you basically suppress your hypothalamus pituitary gonadal axis permanently. So if you're 50 and you're never going to have kids, then yeah, it's fine for you to go on testosterone replacement therapy for you know the rest of your life. Now you have to consider, do you feel like shooting yourself with a needle once or twice a week for the rest of your life? Do you want to do a gel, which I don't advise people doing just because of absorption issues and aromatase issues, so converting it to estrogen? Or do you want to go to a pellet, which is a l- more convenient 
but you have to get basically injected with a pellet, you know, every three to six months. Right. And then I've heard that's had some pretty bad side effects long-term. Which one? The pellets? Pellet. They're harder to manage. Right. And it makes sense. If you're managing something on a weekly level, on a weekly basis, it's much easier to manage. But when you say side effects, do you mean like side effects of having it inserted or? No, I think side effects of like hormone dysregulation, like people's estrogen shooting up or people yeah. getting depressed and stuff like that toward the end. Absolutely. And again, it's like I've had men who have told me, like, yeah, it's been six months since my last pellet. And I'm thinking, but your last blood work is a month after your pellet. Like, where are you between month two and five? Like who's me- measuring that? And that is, I mean, I hate to say it's not a side effect of the pellet. It's a side effect of, of an individual who doesn't know how to manage testosterone levels properly or right. who, who understands hormonal balance. And I've had conversations, Ben, with endocrinologists from top universities. And I'm, I, I simply asked the question, so what are you going to do about the estradiol? Oh, that's not a concern for me. What are you going to do about the dihydrotestosterone? Is that going to be elevated? Oh, we don't really check that. I was like, okay, well, why? I, see, you're laughing. You're like, like, you get it. Like, yeah. this is why I like talking to you, Ben, because you get it, right? Other people, it's just like, okay, I, I don't even know if I can have this conversation with you. I've even had a doctor tell me like, no, I, I don't want to put anybody on, their estradiol levels are like 85 picograms per milliliter. I don't want to put them on anything. It's like, why not? Are you not concerned about the risk of gynecomastia and hyperestrogenemia? No, no, I don't want to do that. That's going to cause any more problems. I think it's just that they don't want to manage it, but also there's very poor guidelines as to how to properly manage hormonal replacement therapy. There's a lot of questions within there, but I want to start with just kind of going with what you said right there. Someone's estrogen is elevated as a man. Are you an advocate of AIs? Yes, but it depends on how frequently you're doing them. So most men are, or most doctors are giving men an astrazole, which is a, also known as a Remedex, you know, usually 0.5 to one, gram, one milligram a day. Are you not which, looking at any um, dietary interventions or body fat interventions? Like, so we've, I've had somebody on recently who talked about some, some kind of nightmare stories with AIs and I'm just yeah. curious to hear your opinions on, you know, the health implications is, you know, it's kind of seems like, you know, which one's, you know, the, the lesser of two evils, right? It's like AIs are going to maybe cause some issues with your arterial sclerosis and hardening your arteries, et cetera. Sure. And then having higher estrogen may cause a completely different subset of uh, negative side effects. Yeah. So really good question. I think the first, and unfortunately I'm guilty of this. Like I should have always, I should, I do always talk about body composition with individuals, with my patients, but I just, I just assume that that's what practitioners are talking about because it has nothing to do with whether you're on hormonal replacement therapy or not. Your, your body composition, your body fat percentage should be as low as healthy, as low and as healthy as possible. So Number one is let's make sure your body fat percentage is not high because the more a body fat you have, the more of aromatase enzyme you will have. So absolutely right. Yes. The first intervention should be, in my opinion, before you even put somebody on hormonal replacement therapy, you have to address the foundation. And when I say foundation, you know, as a naturopathic physician, we have something called the therapeutic order. And I'm not sure if you're very familiar with it. Yeah. You are. No, it's part of the philosophy. You start sure. at the foundation. You start at basically nutrition, life, sleep, exercise. Then you go to supplements. After supplements, then you go into pharmaceuticals. And then after pharmaceuticals, you go into surgery. 
right? Yeah. And I think every human should know that because you know, I teach that in my coaching model when I teach other coaches how to transform somebody's body is everybody automatically goes right to hormones and testosterone. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You've, you've missed all these foundational steps along the way, right? You know, like exercise and, and nutrition and, and just the environment, light and those foundational things that will make such a difference in somebody's mind and their body composition and their overall health. Even on top of that, Ben, is, you know, people want to have a quick fix, but what happens when that stops working, right? Right. Like you just, let's just say you have to get off. Let's just say, God forbid, you're on testosterone replacement therapy and you find out that you have a condition where testosterone replacement therapy is highly contraindicated. And I will tell you that if you're diagnosed with prostate cancer, there's probably no urologist that will put you on testosterone replacement therapy while you have the prostate cancer. Now, I'm not saying that that's the right thing or the wrong thing because there is literature with men who have prostate cancer who or had prostate cancer within the last five years put on testosterone replacement therapy and the prostate cancer does not progress. But that's a whole different conversation for a whole different, I mean, we can even talk about it today if you want. But if you stop that, where do you go? And is the testosterone replacement, are you expecting your mood, your energy, your muscle composition, basically your your well-being to be solely dependent on one shot. And if you're going to depend or put your wellness and your sense of well-being in one little vial, then it, you know, you're putting all your, your eggs in one basket sure. and you're setting your, yourself up for failure. Do you have a prescribed dosing schedule for people? Is it you know, once a week, twice a week, daily? What's your favorite way to balance out somebody's TRT? So, and we're talking only with testosterone, right? Um, the next question is going into what other, other things we're looking at. Yeah. Yeah. So with testosterone replacement therapy, I prefer Cipionate just because it has probably the most uh, stable half-life that you can modify based on a weekly basis. And we start out typically with the lowest dose possible. So if you start out with probably 0.25 cc's twice a week, that's probably the base. And then you slowly increase, you know, 0.25 to 0.3 and then 0.3 to point. Assuming it's 200 milligrams per mil. Yes, 200 milligrams per per milliliter, right? And then you slowly increase. That is much better than just putting somebody on, you know, 0.5 or 1 cc a week because now you have the issue of fluctuations. And then the second thing to that is uh, you monitor that very, very closely and you make sure you're testing on the exact same schedule. So if you inject on Sunday, and you do the blood work on a Monday, the next blood work should not be on a Thursday or a Wednesday or even on a Saturday, right? The day before. You have to be very precise in what you do. And and this is basic like scientific method, like high school biology 101. Sure. But it's often forgotten and dismissed. So I, I start very low, typically 0.25 cc's twice a week, see how they go, move up on that aspect and see, I recommend that that's what could be done in, in order to get you at the optimal level because it prevents overshooting. So are you seeing any um, negative effects when you do the overshooting? Like if there is a scenario where you can recall that like, hey, I actually overshot this by a little bit. We had this person up at 1500. Have you seen the estrogen shoot up? Have you seen any other negative effects at all? Water retention, whatever it may be, or is it has that ever happened? I think the major side effect that I've seen that most men will point out quickest is hair loss. They'll, they'll notice hair loss and be like, I'm losing a lot of head hair, 
why is this happening? And that's I have no idea what you're talking about, Ralph. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I try to, I try to keep it, yeah, keep it in the right range, man. You're doing the right thing. I wish I could do what you do. To be honest, no, you don't. Oh God, it'd be so yeah. much. I mean, how hard is it to maintain? It's, yeah, it's, so we, it's certainly easy. Yeah, certainly okay. easier than having yeah. hair, but it's an advantage to have your hair, man. <laughs> okay. So a few guys now, right? It seems like everybody's doing the bald thing. So you, you've got to at least you know how to manage it, man. I wish I had known back in the day. Maybe I could have saved it. <laughs> oh, I have. I have support. My girlfriend is like, okay, this is what you have to do. I'm like, fine, oh. whatever. I have to look pretty for you. Perfect. So. Presuming you're, someone comes to you and they have low testosterone, I've heard you say before that it shouldn't be done in isolation, and we kind of talked about it today. So what are all the other things that you may be looking at in conjunction? I mean, we, did, you didn't mention DHEA, so I'd like for you to talk about that. How are you managing DHT? Are you managing thyroid? Like, what are those things we're looking at? If we're looking for this optimal scenario, are there other things that will go synergistically with testosterone? Yeah, so I think the first, I have to preface this with testosterone is not first-line therapy. Great. I think that I think that has to be very clear. Mm-hmm. The first line therapy is are you sleeping? Because that has the most impact. And if you're not and if you're not, what do you do if you're not sleeping? Yeah. You sleep. <laughs> yeah, but right. you can't. Okay, so now you have to figure now you go into sleep hygiene. And this is a whole rabbit hole of a conversation because I, I think I think the only prescription for that is go read Matthew Walker's book, right? I'm guessing you've read that. Yeah, why you sleep. Yeah, and you've heard him on Peter's Peter Thiel's podcast. Like, I think that it would be hard. I, I was actually writing a, a module for my website on sleep, and I stopped. And I was like, forget it. Just go buy this book. Like, there's there's no point in me trying to do a better job than this guy. Unless you could tell me there's something in there that, that maybe you'd suggest that he didn't. No, he basically covers all bases on on all aspects. Yeah, you have to read that. And I think when it comes down to it, is and it's simple stuff. It's so simple, but it's hard for us to do. Is your room black? Right. Is your room cool? Are you having caffeine in the evening? Are you avoiding alcohol? Right. Like those are the four major things. And are you going to bed basically, I don't want to say fasted, but not eating right before bedtime. Those are all things that are within your control and are oftentimes free but are very hard to modify in this modern society. And the biggest thing I see is put your phone away, right? Blue light. Blue light. Right. So going down that path then, because not that we really want to talk about sleep, but it is a big part of optimization. Talk to me about, you know, those, those things that you're advising people to do before bed. If they are experiencing anxiety, racing mind, you know, they're doing all the other things, checking all the boxes, like, Hey, it's dark, it's cold you know, I didn't eat very much, but I still have, maybe I have chronically low serotonin or maybe, you know, I'm just getting anxious before bed. What are those interventions you're suggesting in ice scenario? Like as a functional medicine doctor, I'm sure you run into this a lot. Yeah. So I don't like supplementing with melatonin immediately, right? Because I think what's often missed is melatonin is a hormone, right? And first we need to identify why is the body not making it? And many cofactors are necessary for making melatonin, you need the precursors, which is tryptophan or 5-hydroxytryptophan, 5-HTP. You need copper. You need B vitamins, like vitamin B6. So that's where I start. Are, do you have the essential cofactors in order to pair your body and allow it to heal itself and do what it needs to do to set itself up in the proper micro environment or the, or the metabolic environment? So those are the things that I look at immediately. And then before going to melatonin, I look at certain herbs. Because typically herbs are going to be 
more benign, right? Not that melatonin is harmful, but I don't want people to become dependent on melatonin because if they start using it on a daily basis, and I have seen this clinically, is that they tend to become more reliant, right? So just to put it in perspective, the body makes about 0.1 to 0.3 milligrams of uh, melatonin before it goes to bed and during bedtime. How much is in a supplement? One milligram, right? Three milligrams, five milligrams, 10, 20. Like you can be flooding the, if you're not responding to three, four, five milligrams, 10 milligrams, it is not an issue of melatonin insufficiency. Now we're talking about a receptor issue or other things that are impairing your ability to fall asleep. And also people don't understand that melatonin helps you stay asleep is not necessarily important to help you fall asleep. The herbs are what I use to help people fall asleep. And it's important asleep. to acknowledge that the melatonin suppression is most often seems to be a cause or, or caused by excessive blue light, right? Oh, yeah. The blue light's going to be suppressing that. So people who are getting the telephone or the, the computer or the TV before bed, that's what's going to be crushing your sleep. Yeah. And I don't think there's any controversy over that. It's, we know that blue light does this and it's, it's, a, it's a physiologic response in the morning we wake up, we see the sun, and you have now less melatonin production. Have you seen a big bump at all in practice of people who actually improve their sleep and see an improvement in their hormones? Or is that pretty speculative at this point? I- improvement in their hormones from sleep? Across the board. Yeah, from improving sleep. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Like yeah. a phenomenal improvement. And not in just testosterone. I don't know if I mentioned this to you before, we probably have discussed it, but there was one study in in one of the chapters that I wrote where subsection was sleep and testosterone. And this was maybe like three years ago. So before this whole craze on sleep, there was a study that showed that men who were sleep deprived, consistently sleep deprived. So they they put them in a lab and they basically made sure that they did not sleep. Their testosterone levels significantly decreased. And then when they prepared them or allowed them to sleep, their testosterone levels increased to the level that was equal to getting hormonal replacement therapy. Wow. Right? So that's basically saying sleep is as strong as exogenous hormones. Or maybe, there's, maybe it's also saying that there's value in going through periods of hyper amounts of stress that your body rebounds with a, with a higher amount of testosterone. That, that could also be very true, right? So now you're having an, a supra anabolic response Mm -hmm. because it's been so catabolic for such a period of time. And now also you have to understand that during those sleep deprivation periods, your cortisol levels are also elevated. Perfect. That was the segue, right? So I wanted to talk about the dynamic interplay between cortisol and testosterone and how they're affecting each other. Right. So one of the, the major things that I could see with cortisol is it's a catabolic hormone, right? And testosterone and insulin and DHEA is a anabolic hormone, right? So you have to look at that balance. And now I don't think people, I think people give cortisol just a, you know, a, a one view reputation is cortisol bad. And that's not necessarily true because if that were the case, then we wouldn't be making it in the first place. So it does have its place, but it has its place in the right environment and in the right duration. So cortisol at very high levels increases blood glucose. That's, that's inarguable. It increases blood glucose. An increase in blood glucose causes an increase in insulin. An increase in insulin and chronic insulin increase in insulin upregulates aromatase enzyme. So now you're upregulating the enzyme that depletes your testosterone into estradiol. So now you are making more estradiol, 
which makes more body fat. Where is body fat, where is cortisol made? Mostly in the adrenal glands and, in, and, and it's promoted by body fat or by adipose cells, right? So you're basically just feeding the cycle and you make more estradiol, which is going to deplete you of more testosterone. It's going to make you less testosterone sensitive, makes you more insulin resistant. And now we're just in this whole horrible cycle. Right, so there's no direct mechanism by which cortisol influences testosterone directly, but it's through this elevated insulin kind of estra or aromatase pathway. Well, it's a little bit unclear as to whether cortisol has an impact on the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis. There is some suggestion. Now I'm going now, right? So as a naturopathic physician, as a functional medicine practitioner, I have to look at the biochemical pathways. And cortisol does increase inflammatory cytokines like interleukin-6 and interleukin-1 and TNF, right? Those at, are at certain levels or regardless? So like um, when cortisol reaches a certain, or a certain height? At, at certain durations. Okay. Right. A certain duration, so chronically elevated cortisol levels will, and at low levels too, it does that. But the longer cortisol is elevated, the more that these inflammatory cytokines will be made. These inflammatory molecules will be made, and these inflammatory molecules can actually go into. I have a great infographic on this, not an infographic, a, a diagram on this that shows that interleukins, these uh, IL six and IL one, will actually go down and inhibit or impair luteinizing hormone receptors in the testes. Wow. So luteinizing hormone is a hormone that's released by the pituitary gland, yep. that uh, LH, that goes to the testes, tells your testes, make more testosterone. So that's two mechanisms. Now we know how cortisol is, is suppressing testosterone. Exactly right. And now I am not, I'm not entirely sure as to what cortisol is doing to your HPG axis, but I do know that it can impair your hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, right? And chronic levels of it can impair your HPG, can cause APA access dysfunction. And in order to make testosterone, you need, you need DHEA, right? So now you have different issues going on with your adrenal glands and that fatigue that you might be experiencing from hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis dysfunction, not adrenal fatigue, right? Because that's it's right. on the list to talk about. Okay. Okay, good. We can go into that. And and the whole pregnenolone steel is also another thing that is completely misunderstood. But that all causes an imbalance, right? So I'm not telling you, and this is where I think the many other physicians and practitioners are misinterpreting what is being said, is I'm not telling you that cortisol is inhibiting your testosterone. I'm telling you that hyper cortisolemia, hyperinsulinemia, hyperestrogenemia are causing an imbalance, an imbalance in this hormonal milieu that is impairing how this hormonal symphony is working, right? If one person in that orchestra is off, it impairs everybody else. Sure. And that's how hormones work. And the way I look at it is that hormones have 20, 30 inputs, but one output. And all of those inputs need to be orchestrated properly in order for the outcome to be optimal. So what are some of your interventional strategies for decreasing cortisol? The first thing, and it's kind of obvious, we've already discussed sleep, sleep. right? Meditation is excellent. Now, the, the question with meditation is, does meditation decrease cortisol acutely or chronically? And that's, that's very hard to measure. But I think I, both. Personally, I would say both. I, I would agree. Yeah. But I think... If you told somebody who never meditated 
meditate and your cortisol levels are going to be lower in the next, you know, 20 days, I don't think that's going to be entirely accurate. Well, so my thought is this, right? The, the way I maybe articulate it is it just allows me to not be as responsive to those typical day-to-day stresses, right? And I say this to my clients all the time, like if your kids are yelling and it's irritating you, if there's a loud sound and it's irritating, if, if your wife or, or husband is saying something that's irritating you, it has nothing to do with them and everything to do with you and the way your nervous system and body is interpreting it. So if you can learn to meditate, it just kind of dims that that switch a little bit, that light switch a little bit. So now those those stimuli, those stressful stimuli aren't as stressful. So now your, your perception of that stress changes, right? Absolutely. So I literally use stress in my life kind of as my acid test, right? It's like, hey, do I need to go and meditate more? You know, like if something's stressing me out and I'm really irritated in any way at any time, it's a result of my lack of meditation or my lack of duration or frequency or whatever it happens to be. So I think acutely, even in 20 days, if you're doing it, you know, quote unquote correctly, whatever that means, in some way getting a some type of mindfulness response, I, I believe people could see a difference. I absolutely agree. In fact, the time that I mo- noticed the most benefit from meditation was when I first started. Huh. Right. So I'm, I'm now noticing that I need to meditate. I need to step up my game with my meditation. Right. So doing 10 minutes a day, it doesn't do it for me. I think sure. that I need to start doing more of it because I've actually mastered it a little sure, bit. Sure, like better. anything, right? Like exercise, really like anything. At some point, you got to yeah. step up your game. But on top of that, I think what people are misunderstanding is if you go to a doctor, it's like, oh, well, your inflammatory markers are high. Why is that? Stress. Okay, well, which one? Mm-hmm. My, my, my son who just, yeah, my son just got into a car accident or the fact that I just overdrafted or the fact that my boss is screaming down my neck, right? Like all of those things are stressors. But the other stressors that people dismiss is food. Food is a stressor, but it could also be- that. Because that, that's the hot topic of the day right now, right? If, what do you mean? If, it's, if it fits your macros, man. As long as it fits my macros, it's okay. Man. <laughs> so I don't, I don't want to argue about this. Oh, right? no. I'm not an if it fits your macro guy. Don't worry. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I, I wouldn't even argue with you, right? I would just right. tell you how it is. Right. I do think calories matter. I do right. think because it's, it's physics, Right. I do not think that our body is that simplistic to the point where you can say calories in, calories out, and you're going to get an exact result. I do think all things equal, hormonal optimization, everything is on the control. It's never all equal, as you know, man. Exactly, exactly, exactly. But physics says all things equal, calories in, calories out. Right, physics is looking at a box. Right, the first law of thermodynamics exists in a closed system. Exactly, within a vacuum. Right, exactly right. I'm so happy you said that because that is the one thing that people completely forget about this whole equation. It's ridiculous. I laugh at all these guys who are throwing it in your face every day. And two years from now, they're going to come back and go, God, I was an idiot. But no, everyone's going to forgive them because, right. you know, but they're just ripping people apart about, oh, it's just if it fits your macros and fucking. Because it works for them, right? right. Yeah, sure. It works for you. So therefore, it must be true. Right. So the, the one thing is, 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 is food a stressor and is, lack there of food a stressor so we know wow. famine is a stressor right right and we know overeating is also a stressor mm-hmm. okay and unfortunately most people are now between the two it's do i you know fast for a thousand calories for seven days or five days and and not eat or do i you know i'm 
you know, just binge now and overeat. I think that and, hits pretty close to home with you with this fasting thing with one of your aforementioned clients. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's, talk to me about that, right? Like, so it's, it's, the, it's the fad of the day. The fad of 2019 is everyone must fast. And it sounds like you don't agree. I think fasting must be done in a very controlled environment with the guidance of a practitioner, with baseline labs, with ba- baseline assessment, knowing where you are along that spectrum of health and wellness and illness. Okay? Have you done labs before and after these extended fasts? Yeah, I've done it on myself. Yep. Okay. Yeah, I've done it on myself. I've done three-day water fasts. I've done a prolon fast, the prolon FMD. I've done that. I will tell you that my reverse T3 jumps after a prolon fast. My TSH jumps up. My testosterone, my testosterone decreases. Right after just three days of a water fast, mm-hmm. yeah, yep. I think three days is enough to see a response. Significant or insignificant? My reverse T three would go from like fourteen to twenty four. Wow. How about testosterone? My testosterone dropped from seven fifty to like high threes, like three eighty. Huge drop. That's a drop. Wow. That's a big drop, right? Now, but a lot of that rebound five days after that, did, like, did that hermetic hermetic stress to use that term? cause a rebound afterwards i didn't check seven days or five days after i checked a few months after and it did rebound higher or sit back to seven normal yeah yeah it went back to normal and i think the reason why testosterone my free testosterone also dropped is because my sex hormone binding globulin increased and we know that things that increase sex hormone binding globulin is hypoinsulinemia right so low insulin levels will cause your sex hormone binding globulin to jump up so that's why i think that has happened Oh, wow. Talk about that. So I didn't know that was a reality. Yeah. So, oh, that's uh, real. Yeah. So Hyper, people- hyperthyroidism, high thyroid, low insulin, and high estradiol are the three major factors that influence SHBG. So all these people striving to get their insulin levels as low as possible could actually be causing negative effects on testosterone. We see it most prominent in type 1 diabetics. It's like night. I mean, it's, it's inarguable. You see very, very low insulin levels in type 1 diabetics their SHPG is high. So someone who's a you know, ketogenic dieter, a faster, you know, they're trying to keep their, their resting insulin below 70, or sorry, the resting glucose below 70, insulin levels are very, very low. Are they going to start to see those negative effects over time? It is possible. I don't know of any literature that, that says non-type 1 diabetics over this period of time will have a low SHB, higher SHPG. It's just basic physiology. But I do know there are many patients and even just myself is like, once I go keto and I'm in keto, ketosis, nutritional ketosis for 14 days, my libido has gone. It's, it's not, it's not existent. Like I feel horrible and I probably should be doing lab work on this and I probably should be testing it, but I haven't, but I know enough. And again, this comes back to the conversation is, do I need a number to prove to you that my libido is lower? So talk to me about your keto diet. Cause this is very curious to me because we get a lot of listeners who are on the ketogenic diet is it something where you're measuring your macros and you're pretty consistent or you tend to overeat? You, you know, like, I'm just curious as to like, you know, some people when they do a ketogenic diet, they just don't eat enough. They feel satiated. They feel great. You know, or, or is it something where you're like, yeah, I'm making sure I'm actually hitting my macros all the time. Oh yeah. I'm definitely hitting at least 24 to 2800 calories okay. per day while doing my ketogenic diet. I'm not like eating a bunch of protein, right? I cut mm-hmm. out protein shakes. It's basically olive oil, salads, avocado, eggs, 
salmon is most of where my protein comes from and obviously eggs. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I definitely do feel it. Now, look, I'm not going to go ahead and say ketogenic diet, a ketogenic diet does this to everybody. Mm-hmm. I think there are tremendous amounts of benefit to a ketogenic diet. And I think it's actually one of the more, more efficient diets in improving hyperinsulinemia and improving metabolic function. But it is not for everybody, and it can be a stressor. And also, let's put it into context, it can be a stressor on top of other stressors, right? So if you're not sleeping, you should, you should not be doing keto. Right. If you're not sleeping, you shouldn't be fasting. Yeah. And people don't get that, right? People think, well, it's easy. You know, I'm just going to wake up in the morning and not eat for a lot of my time, but your cortisol is already massively elevated. Your inflammation is already massively elevated. And like, oh, I'm just going to fast until two in the afternoon or fast until five o'clock. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Right. <laughs> like, that's not a good idea. And then you find what they do at the end of the day, they'll binge, you know, and often overeat. And, and that's been a big concern with a lot of clients that I've worked with is like, you try a little, little, you know, decreased eating window. Like, you know, we can try to decrease it to 12 hours and then 10 hours and see how you feel. But as you say, if you're stressed, it's, I've seen it work negatively backwards. Yeah. So, you know, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. Yeah. Right. So one of my best friends and actually has really helped me with my health. And she's basically just slapped me in the face figuratively. Although if she did, literally, I probably wouldn't do anything about it because, <laughs> you know, Gabrielle should just be the shit out of me. Um, and she's like, what are you doing? And I was like, I was like, it's four o'clock and I'm going to go train. She's like, but you did not eat the whole day and you're going to deadlift 400 pounds. Right. You're not doing that. I was like, okay, like why, why should I not be doing that? She's like, you're stressing yourself out. You're overstressing yourself. You're going to finish eating. You're going to binge eat after that workout. You're putting, and I have a history of IBS. She's like, your digestive tract cannot handle that. Your digestive tract cannot handle 2,000 calories in one sitting. You can't do that. And this is where, as a physician, I need to step back and say, you know what? You're right. You, You see it. You have an outside view. And this is why you are so helpful with other people because a lot of people know the knowledge, right? They have, they have the facts, but implementation and an outside view and putting the facts together in a puzzle is really what makes somebody a good practitioner. Yep. And, and I couldn't do that for myself. And I was just like, you know what? You're right. Right. So the thing is, I do the same thing, right? Like I'm always testing something. I'm always doing something new and fasting. I mean, you feel great, right? But I, no question, I realized my cortisol was elevated. My likelihood to overeat in a meal was elevated. Like I just didn't, didn't feel right. Like I think the cortisol is why you feel good, right? right? But then you're getting such elevated levels that it ends up causing long-term negative side effects. Absolutely. And then you see this, a lot of the major studies with, and when you say fasting, I want to make sure that we're differentiating. So, sure. right. So there's time-restricted feeding, which right. is, you know, 16-8, 18-6, mm-hmm. 24-22-2, whatever you want to do it. Mm-hmm. Then there's fasting, which is Prolong. not eating, mm-hmm. right? And then there's like hypocaloric fasting, like a prolon FM. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the research, because fasting is so new, when I say fasting, I'm, I'm encompassing all of those. Mm-hmm. Because it's so new, a lot of the research that we have is on Ramadan and where they're basically fasting from sunrise to sunset, which is time-restricted feeding, right? Not eating for 12 to 16 hours. And in a lot of those studies, if you follow them properly, you will see that it does have a negative impact on TSH levels, on thyroid hormone levels. And that's where I think it's a normal, it makes total sense. And we know this. And I remember when I first started studying nutrition in undergrad at NYU, 
they, you know, they were not an advocate of low calorie diets. They said, because it causes yo-yo dieting and it causes you to gain weight after. And I always asked why, and they're like, oh, well, you know, your body rebounds and your blood sugar levels fluctuate. No, it's your thyroid. It is your thyroid and it's the depletion of muscle mass without the repletion of muscle mass. So when you are fasting, you are not building, you're in a catabolic state making you harder to build muscle mass. Therefore, when you resume eating, if you lose muscle mass, your insulin sensitivity decreases, making it more difficult for you to utilize sugar as energy. And your thyroid hormone jumps up and down, which then causes a a thyroid dysfunction. And then you take it one step further, thyroid hormone is essential for testosterone receptors in the lydic cells and on muscle. So now the hormone that's trying to save you and become more anabolic is now, it really is unable to do its job. So now you just have a bunch of different insults and you're basically screwing yourself over. Are you familiar with the recent data that says, well, shows, shows I think it's a 5-2 diet split, so five days of depletion with two days of like higher, higher carbohydrate will tend to normalize the, the negative effects of the thyroid hormone? Have you seen any data like that? So like basically, if, have you seen any data that shows you how long it takes before that THS, TSH will come back down? So I don't know. I don't know that particular study. I'll pull it. For, I'll put in the research in the show notes for this because I don't remember who it was, but there's definitely one one group. It might have even been like Ryan Lowry from University of Tampa or previous from the University of Tampa, who showed um, lack of like the metabolic shutdown when people did, you know, five days of calorie restriction followed by two days of kind of self-guided eating. I think it was. I do know that typically the special or the magic number of days that you should be doing in order to fast before you start seeing a lot of these hormonal imbalances is three days. So that would make sense because two days, it's probably not enough time for you to, your body to physiologically respond. Hormones take time to respond. You know, it's not an immediate thing, but that, that absolutely would make sense to me. And again, it's what we see physiologically, what we see clinically as well is that a lot of people once they start fasting for one to two days, they typically handle it. Day three and day four, they're just like, geez, this is, this is tough. It's tough for me too. I mean, I've done two FMDs. I've done two prolonged fasts already. And I'm just like, geez, day four sucks. One and two, I can handle it. But three and four are tough. Your brain starts to work a little bit more slowly. Is that what you find? Yeah, and I feel cold. It was funny because we're in July here in New York. I was sitting, well, this was in June, and I was sitting in my car in the sun, which is typically like a death sentence, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, ooh, this feels really good, right? This feels awesome because it's so warm in there. My body was basically freezing. So you notice it. You see it. This is is not made up. The problem is, is I think a lot of people think they know what they're doing. They think they understand physiology. They think they understand biochemistry and endocrinology. And unfortunately, they're just, they're just doing what they think is right, what it feels right, what other people have been saying. And they mislead their body down a path that can actually cause some permanent metabolic dysfunction. So let's go back and talk about adrenal fatigue because I know you kind of got excited when I brought that term up. And I think we both know that it's um, maybe misunderstood. So I'd love to have you talk to us about what adrenal quote unquote fatigue actually is. Adrenal fatigue, I'm going to be blunt about it, does not exist. But that does not mean that if you have chronic fatigue, that it's just all in your head and you're not feeling that. That is true. There, I mean, and I see it. 
But for me to say that your adrenals are fatigued, and when people say their adrenals are fatigued, or the other uh, synonym is my my adrenals are shot. Mm-hmm. What they're what they're trying to say is that your adrenal glands are no longer putting out cortisol, right? And that's why I don't like the salivary testing, because the salivary testing t- salivary test does not test all of your cortisol. So you can get a salivary test; it shows that your adrenal uh, that your cortisol levels are low. Therefore, you have adrenal fatigue. So there's stage one adrenal f- fatigue, stage two, stage three, and stage three is the point where you say your adrenal glands are shot. So basically. You have an acute stressor, so your stress hormones kind of decrease. Then you have a, a subacute where they increase, or stage two where they increase and kind of you know stay elevated, and then they completely drop. And what people think is, well, prolonged stress is going to burn out your adrenal glands to the point where they can't make any more. And that is not true. It's just a what they're saying is a explanation or an artifact of the test, but is not physiologically occurring in the body. So what is actually happening is that, yes, under chronic amounts of stress, you have elevated release of ACTH, which is from the adrenal, uh, from the, the brain, the hypothalamic pituitary axis, goes to the adrenal glands and tells you to make cortisol, right? In the middle layer, so the fasciculatus layer, fasciculata layer of the adrenal gland tells you to make cortisol. And over longer periods of time, what happens is that you're not making less cortisol. Your body is, your body's intelligent as hell. Like it is the most fat. It's the reason why I went into medicine because I'm just completely fascinated by it. And what happens is that the enzymes that are responsible for metabolizing cortisol, putting it into its inactive metabolites like cortisone and the THE and THF metabolites that you find in urine are upregulated, which is basically by 11 beta HSD and five alpha five beta reductase. While those are upregulated, your body is doing the right thing, trying to get rid of the cortisol. But in saliva, you're not seeing that. You just see low cortisol. So people think, okay, I have adrenal fatigue, but in fact, your body's doing the right thing and shunting the cortisol to where it should not be. And that's a normal physiologic response. So what's the response to fix it, right? So if, if, our, if we know our stress is going to be elevated for a long period of time, yes, remove the stress. But is there other interventions we could apply to correct the adrenal imbalance, call it. Yeah. So one of the things wouldn't be just one of the things I use a, a, an adaptogen cocktail. I don't think just one adaptogen is going to do the trick, but if you had to ask me what my favorite one is, is ashwagandha or yeah. withania somnifera, just because it's more of a gentle, relaxing adaptogen, but I use combinations. I use rhodiola. Mm-hmm. I use ashwagandha, but sometimes I will use a panex ginseng, which yeah. is also known as red ginseng or Korean ginseng. And I'll sometimes use Eleuthero. Did I say rhodiola? I think I said rhodiola as well. Yeah, so rhodiola also works more on a cognitive level. And then I'll use other things like licorice, licorice root, which is an inhibitor of 11-beta-HSD. So I usually only use that short-term and acutely because I don't want your – because what licorice will do is it'll prevent the conversion of cortisol to cortisone. So it keeps more cortisol floating around, Mm -hmm. but you don't want that long-term. You only want it in the morning and you want it enough to kind of speak back to the uh, hypothalamus and say, hey, we have cortisol here. You need to chill out a little bit. But you can't, do not by any means expect an adaptogen to completely solve your problem. Do not expect licorice or ashwagandha or rhodiola to completely resolve the stressors that you're experiencing. 
but do expect them to blunt the stress response and the perception of stress, right? So stress is really the perception of stress coupled with the anticipation of stress. Mm -hmm. So the adaptogens can help you with the perception of the stress on a molecular level at the, at the receptor level, but it's not going to change your anticipation of a stress. You still see a lion coming running at you. Sure. You're going to be stressed out no matter how much ashwagandha or rhodiola or whatever you want to take. So those are the factors that I use. But as an acupuncturist, which this is a bias, I think acupuncture is an exceptional tool to help reduce the stress response and help re-regulate the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. Where, where are you putting acupuncture needles for someone with adrenal insufficiency or whatever you want to call it? Adrenal dysfunction. Yeah. Dysfunction. So I, I base it on the TCM diagnosis. So I do a pulse diagnosis, tongue, do a complete physical exam. I assess them based on their symptoms, their history, et cetera. If for a general recommendation, uh, typically LI6, excuse me, LI4, large intestine four, coupled with liver three, coupled with large intestine 10, coupled with stomach 36. Now are you going straight into those places or are those like particular meridian lines that exist somewhere else? So the large intestine runs along the arm, right? And then the stomach is on the shin and then the liver is on the foot. I choose those because those are traditionally the therapy, the points that are used for individuals who have what we call a yin deficiency, a yang deficiency, or a kidney deficiency. And TCM, the kidneys are the meridian, is the meridian and the organ that is responsible for your energy. So those are the points that help with opening up those channels. Then you supplement with other points that might be improve that might help improve. So I would even use organ points like anyan, which is on the back of the neck, because that can really help you with sleep. Yin tongue, which will definitely help you with sleep as well. So I try to address those underlying factors. Then if you told me, you know, you had digestive issues and I have to correct the digestive dysfunction because you know, as the saying goes, you know, when in doubt, treat the gut or all disease starts in the intestinal tract, you have to make sure the intestinal tract is functioning well. So then I go to that route from, from there on. Do you think there's value in fasting to help support the digestive tract? So you say everything starts in the digestive tract. Do you think there's value in not having food continuously going in there over an extended period of time from that perspective? Absolutely. The one thing that I would tell people, you know, why should you fast? If nothing else, bowel rest. And it's, it's something that we know is very effective for IBD. So Crohn's and colitis, sometimes they just put them on an MPO, right? And nothing per os, basically don't eat. Mm-hmm. Why? Because we want the digestive tract to heal and recover. And the digestive tract, the layer of your digestive tract, the several layers of the digestive tract, they, they, they turn over very quickly. So not only is food restriction not just calorie restriction, right? But, but actually not having anything in your digestive tract for a restricted uh, set period of time allows your digestive tract to recover because it, it replenishes itself very frequently. There's a frequent turnover. So in order for healing to occur and for that mucosal layer to recover, you have to not eat because when you eat, and that even just by strict abrasion of a food being in there, you can cause damage. I mean, like I've seen kids who have been, they were just like eating sunflower seeds, like the shell, and they completely destroyed their digestive tract because food in and of itself is an inflammatory, can be an inflammatory response. I'm not even going into the talk of allergens, like wheat, dairy, soy, eggs, nightshades, et cetera. 
This right. is just food in general and allow the gut to heal itself and also allows the liver to repair, which actually is, is important because the one, the other thing that I see with fasting is I see liver function tests completely resolve, right? So ALT and AST, I sell this to myself. My ALT and AST run high. I don't know why. I can't figure it out. They usually run in the 40s to 50s. One time my AST was at 63. My doctor was like really freaked out. And he, I was like, look, this is where I run. Like, I don't know what it is. It could be the exercise. I don't drink. You know, it's, I'm not taking any like Tylenol or anything else. I could be insulting my liver. I did my prolon fast five days. I did labs after my, my LFTs dropped to like the mid 30s. That's the regenerative property of the body. Yeah. As far as optimization goes, have you started playing with peptides at all? It seems to be like, you know, the, the talk of the town right now in, in high performance circles. Yeah. The only one that I've really experimented with personally was BPC 157 or 157. I haven't experimented with any of the other ones. There have been no human trials on BPC in humans. So it makes me a little bit nervous or, or as of 2018, I haven't seen any human trials on BPC. So it makes me a little bit nervous. It can induce angiogenesis. It can induce more growth. So I always like to make sure that there's a very low risk of growth-related conditions, right, such as cancer. Mm -hmm. So I want to make sure that those things are ruled out. But actually, in all actuality, from what I've seen clinically, it's actually pretty benign. I haven't seen a lot of short-term side effects. But again, you know, we haven't really had long-term studies on these things. So I always take it with a grain of salt. But I wouldn't even claim for that to be an area of my expertise. Man, that was amazing. I think incredible amount of information. What's next for you in your life? What are you excited about these days? <laughs> I was expecting like another science question, man. No. I don't think my hunger for knowledge is ever satisfied. It's never going away. It's never going away. So I would say right now in the next few months, I really just want to hone down on understanding the communication with all of the hormonal systems. I feel like a lot of times we talk in isolation. Who's your top authority on that? Who are you going to to learn? For other hormonal imbalances. One of the favorite people that I learned from is Dr. Carrie Jones. She's the medical director of Dutch. Yep. She understands female hormones very, very well. So most of the time when I can't understand anything about a hormonal imbalance, it's Carrie Jones that I kind of run to and try to figure out what, what's going on there. Great. Now, how do you optimize your life, man? What does is, what is your morning routine look like? What does your training look like right now? Do you stay in great shape? How do you keep optimal? Yeah, so I meditate every morning at least 10 to 15 minutes. That's my first routine. Oh, so you, you said the 10-minute meditation not working for you. So I, I had the same thing, right, where you kind of start losing that effect. So I actually started introducing ways to make it more difficult. So sitting there for cool. 10 minutes, if you only have 10 minutes, like that's all you got, right? So how do we then introduce a challenge? So, you know, it starts off with like most people do it with eyes closed. We'll start doing eyes open and then start meditating on something other than, you know, your breath, like meditate on a sound. And then we move to, I actually will implement things that make me uncomfortable. So I'll sit in an uncomfortable position or I'll put like a, a marble in my back pocket. So I'm sitting on top of the marble and then meditate on the marble. So I find I get more effect by introducing these new kind of like challenging stimuli into the meditation. So like, you know, you hurt your finger or something or you cut your finger, like meditating on it 
um, rather than trying to think about something else, thinking about the pain and going deeper and deeper into the discomfort. And eventually the, the discomfort becomes one with you and you, it just kind of mess. You don't feel the same localized pain anymore. You're, you just almost become the pain, which sounds <laughs> as a little esoteric, <laughs> but right. So try that, man. Like the, So if you only have that short amount of time, I mean, if you can go longer, great, but some days you're like, shit, I only get 10 minutes and 10 minutes often isn't really for some people enough. Some people it's plenty, but uh, that's something I started doing. It's just trying to find a way to make things just a little uncomfortable Yeah, and then having to focus through it, right? And then pulling your attention back from that. One way that I've actually been challenging myself is, I don't know if you have an aura ring, but I use the aura ring to track my sleep, but now they have a great feature on it called Moment. Mm -hmm. which allows you to measure your HRV and your resting heart rate while you're meditating. So that has been a way for me to not just, so I don't think it's about meditation duration. I think it's about meditation quality. And one of my great friends, his name is Kamal. He basically told me, he said, you should start meditating with sound. And what I want to start doing now, and I have to start doing this, and I really need to push myself to do it, is meditate with a sound like a a music learn to meditate with that like a pavlovian association and then like as a guided meditation and then try to listen to that music outside of the meditation setting and see if it can snap you into meditation into that into that mindset yeah i think the most powerful anchor is smells right which is often why they'll burn like incense and stuff and meditation things like smells and sounds are the most are often the most powerful anchors Right. So, you know, I often have people who have anxiety, I'll have them meditate with a smell. And then, so they'll kind of create this peaceful, serene feeling in their mind associated with the smell, anchor the smell. And then when you get an anxious response, just bring that smell back in, it brings back the serene uh, state in their mind. So smells and sounds are, you know, amazing, both, both very powerful anchors. And you know what the great thing about that is, is that just makes sense, mm-hmm. right? I don't need a double blind, randomized, placebo controlled trial with, right. Take a sip people. that you love, literally, right? And if there's any ever a stressful situation, get to it. Not exactly. lavender. <laughs> Not lavender. Don't do that. Awesome, so that, man. That's where we're going, man. Dude, that's awesome. And thank you so much for your time. As always, this is I think, the third time you've been on here now. And it's always an incredible amount of information. So I want to keep having you back because I'm, I'm grateful for all your wisdom. Oh, yeah. This is, I mean, I would say... And I'm not just like tooting your horn. Like this is a podcast that you could never get. Like you, you asked me to do how to do this and I would do it just because the conversations that we have are just beyond, like I'm not just talking to the average person here and your listeners really get it. So I have to be sharp. So right. you challenge me, man. And I like it. So I'll, Dude, I'll take we it. Get such, we get such great feedback when you're on. So we should just create a regular segment <laughs> and make it a regular thing. I'll have to move to New York. Oh, come visit man. Anytime. I'm actually planning it very, very soon, man. All right. Let me know. I'm here. All right, Ralph. Thank you very much, man. I appreciate your time and have an amazing day. All right. You too. Be good. All right, ladies and gents, that's a wrap with Dr. Ralph Esposito. I hope you loved it as much as I did, Dr. Ralph. I hope he can come back every week and be a regular guest on the show. He's just someone who's just a wealth of information that I'm so grateful for. And I could say confidently that I agree with everything Dr. Ralph had to say in this episode. He's one of these people who uh, is so, so bright and his views always seem to align with the smartest people that we come across, right? The people who are leading the way, the people who have the audacity to challenge common belief and 
carve their own path, and which is why I'm such a huge fan of Dr. Ralph. And I know, unfortunately, not everyone can have the opportunity to work directly with Dr. Ralph, but follow him on Instagram and Twitter because he puts out daily amazing information. And I know he's going to continue to grow exponentially in his reach and his message. And I hope you guys have loved my conversation with Dr. Ralph. If you have, head over to muscleintelligence.com slash podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast there and we will send you a notification every time as a new podcast comes out. You should also head over to iTunes and subscribe because we have some awesome giveaways coming at you. We have some really amazing people that are partnering with the podcast who are generously offering to contribute gifts and prizes to give away to listeners who are loyal and support the podcast. And I get such amazing feedback, which is why I keep motivated to continue what I do. And man, the level of gratitude that I have for people that give me an hour once a week or twice a week, or sometimes three times a week when we release podcasts more often, I can't tell you enough how much I appreciate your time and your ear and, um, you know, your trust for trusting me to go out and seek the best experts and provide the best information and curate the best information, right? Obviously, you know, it, it's curated what you guys hear because there's certain people that we record and you don't ever get to hear because it's just maybe not appropriate or maybe not accurate, or maybe the beliefs are, are parallel. And I want you guys to know that anyone I, I present on the show, for the most part, I believe in what they say, right? Sometimes I want to give you guys opposing views, but for the most part, um, you know, these people are providing amazing information that allow you to make your decisions. I've got a little bit of backlash about really siding with one side or the other, or sometimes I get backlash when I present both sides of the coin. And ultimately, I, you know, I love this idea of coming in with an unbiased view for you and saying, here, here's all the information. Here's all the data. You form your opinion. It doesn't matter what somebody else thinks because at the end of the day, what works for me may not work for you. Anyways, guys, I hope you're having an amazing day, crushing everything in life, doing it with a smile on your face, setting goals that are way, way bigger than you ever think you can achieve in this lifetime and accomplishing them way faster than you think. And I'm surrounding myself with great people now that inspire me to be bigger and better and be my greatest. And I hope I can do the same for you. And I hope you have someone in your life who does it for you. Set big goals, create an action plan. Let's do this together, guys. Have an amazing day. Head over to muscleintelligence.com to subscribe and share this with at least one person you know that wants to live their greatest life in a body they love. Have a great day. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.